Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As I'm heading toward the finish line of my ministry with you, I'm being reminded of a lot of things. I've been reminded of a lot of firsts. My first visit to St. Timothy's and going around the campus with Pastor, now Bishop Dan, wondering when in the world the campus would ever end. Of course, it just so happened to be raining. I remember my ordination, my first time serving you communion. I remember the intimidation of these spotlights as they shone down on me, and I'd wondered if I'd just melt standing under them and wondered if I'd want to do this again. I remember my first visits with T.C. Carmack and George and Mary Ellen McCarthy. I remember my first musical performance in a hospital with two great kids. I've been reminded of the dear ones who are now with the Lord. And there are many. Some of, some of the ones I've remembered are E. Abelo, Norm Conrad, Olga Walters, Jim Geist, just to name a few. I've been reminded of confirmation classes, choir rehearsals, and the near disaster when I forgot my sermon manuscript at home and Alec needed to rush and get here so that I didn't completely embarrass myself having nothing to say when it came time for the sermon. I, remember, I have remembered the times that you've forgiven me and we've been able to make things right. I've remembered sharing my lack of confidence with you at, our first annual, at my first annual meeting with you and Warren Finch making a beeline to me telling me that not only did he believe that I could do the job I was called to do, he believed I could do much more. I remember Michael Stamos coming up to me after worship one Sunday, telling me how important he thought that it was that I was doing what I was doing because he had young girls who were watching me. I remembered some of the pastoral care conversations I've had with you, remember, remembering being floored by your vulnerability and trust in me in those conversations. I've been reminded of so many memories which have given me the confidence to take this next step of faith, trusting that God will provide. And then I've had some other memories, memories not of St. Tim's, memories that I didn't expect to have, memories of things which have ended in my life. I've been reminded of the conclusion of other ministries, memories of our family moving, memories of relationships which painfully ended. I've been reminded of memories begging me to finish well because I don't want to repeat them. One of those memories that came to me was of when I was first cutting my teeth in youth ministry. And I believed that I had been given a vision by God to catapult us into youth ministry success for the books. Maybe it was my vision, really. But I believed that this was do or die. I was very passionate about this new vision. And almost immediately, I, as I shared this vision with someone, I, I encountered my first roadblock, my first detractor. I was so angry that this person disagreed with me because I thought this was just such a great vision. It needed to be done. And so instead of hearing her disagreement, I heard her complete lack of alliance with my thoughts, and so I began to feel anger in my heart toward her. I thought that I felt like this was a personal attack. I harbored this anger for a number of months, 
And then seemingly out of the blue, the thought came to my mind, what is more important, that this particular vision happens or that your heart is right with God? Don't you think that God can accomplish God's purposes in more than one way? I immediately knew that this thought was not mine because it was much more generous than I was feeling at the time. So I knew that this must be uh, the spirit and not myself. I resonated with it, and I thought that it was true and good, but my heart wasn't ready to bend. And so I stayed. I wasn't ready to bend or forgive. And it would take years before that forgiveness would come into my heart, and only as a gift, embarrassingly enough to say, until I could finally let that anger go. It's been a lot, processing my emotions, responding to yours, old memories flooding back, being reminded that the relationship of pastor and congregation is truly beautiful, unique, and fragile. I've been thankful for your words of blessing and affirmation, though my new call may not be entirely understandable to you. And I want to make sure to thank Pastor Jim for your kindness and support and maybe most of all your respect and your prayers as I've journeyed through this. It hasn't been easy, and so your, your support in this has meant a lot to me. Thank you. I wish I could do this all perfectly and that we could all have the same expectations of how this ought to go and that this chapter in your life and in mine could be wrapped up so perfectly with a bow. But the reality is, I am human, and so are you. So differing expectations, pain, and sin will be unavoidably intertwined in our story. But thanks be to God that he can redeem all things, and that grace, forgiveness, and hope are continually at work in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. Your grace, forgiveness, love, and words of blessing have been immense gifts to me. When my husband Alec was first beginning his ministry, his pastor told him, you know, Alec, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I wondered how the church could have survived all these years without me. <laughs> then in my 40s and 50s, I realized how the church survived all those years without me. Now that I'm in my 60s and 70s, I've wondered how the church has survived with me. <laughs> Pastor Rick's honesty and humility have long endeared Alec and me to him. And he is one of our dear friends and, and a mentor for Alec. The older we get, the more we recognize that we are on a similar journey. In our 20s and 30s, we've wondered how the church could have survived without us. As we enter our 40s and then we'll get into our 50s, we will realize how the church has survived all these years without us. And then one day, when we're in our 60s and 70s, we'll wonder how the church could have survived with us. The older I get, the more these crow's feet settle in, the more I realize the importance of humility. It's really difficult to be humble when we're in the thick of it, whatever the it is. 
We have a lot of information. We've got skin in the game, boots on the ground, and something's at risk. Our reputation, our future, our, our future prospects, success, finances. When we believe that we are in the right, it's difficult to let go. As I waded into our passage from Numbers 20, I started to wonder about the parts that were unsaid. What was Moses' motivation behind what he did? Why was God's punishment so strict? And what might this mean for us? This story is one of those odd trivia questions that we, that we might have heard if we were playing Bible trivia. What was the reason Moses couldn't enter the promised land? Because he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. It's a weird story, and there's not a lot to it. The people want to fight Moses and Aaron because they are thirsty and they have no food. And then this is what happens. Striking of the rock, and they get water. So let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about the people. They're ridiculous. They're always complaining. They had the chance to get into the promised land, and they refused to go in. They saw all the food that, were there, that was there, and they said no. So they're stuck in the desert because of themselves. It's their fault. They're afraid to enter the land, and then now they're in the desert, as was their choice, and they don't have any food or water, and they're wondering where the figs and all of the wonderful food is. It's a mercy that God didn't kill them right then and there, but allowed them to keep living. And poor Moses. He had to put up with all these whiners who nearly stoned him, stoned him at least a couple times. They resented his leadership, and they continued to disobey God. Numbers 20 says that, uh, 12 says that Moses was the humblest man on earth. They couldn't have done much better than Moses. Of course, Moses may have written this passage in Numbers, but, uh, <laughs> but still, maybe he was the humblest man on earth that ever lived. If it weren't for Moses' interventions, God may have wiped them from the face of the earth a couple of times. Who knows? As I read about Moses' leadership, I simply can't imagine the task that he has. He deserves better. He's too good for these people. The situation in Numbers 20 seems like a blip on the screen for Moses. He always seems to do the right, obedient, gracious thing, except for maybe when he had the 3,000 slaughtered after the golden calf incident. But who's counting? He's the one who talks God off the ledge. So it seems really odd that God, or that Moses scolding the people and then striking the rock instead of speaking to it prevents him from entering the promised land. Why should this be of any consequence to God? The text is not entirely clear. So we can speculate as to what's going on, which is kind of fun. Perhaps this is making clear what God said in Numbers 14.30. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Or maybe Moses felt ambivalent about this command of God to speak to the rock instead of striking it, because this same scenario happened earlier when God told him to strike it and water came out of the rock. So why do something different when you already know what works? Or perhaps Moses was concerned that maybe this time Moses wouldn't be defended by God from the people. They tried stoning him a couple times. Maybe God would provide for the people, and this time Moses wouldn't survive it. We don't know. 
The small window that we are provided seems to pose more questions than it does answers. But we do know that God told Moses to do something, and then Moses did something else. The Lord tells Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust enough in me to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Moses was not the provider and savior of his people. God was. Moses was not the sustainer of his own life or the community's. God was. In failing to treat God as holy, Moses treated God as common, a power to wield instead of a power, a person to yield. Moses did not obey God. He took the power of God and wielded it for his own purposes. And then God said, no. No more. You're done. I am the provider, sustainer, and savior of this people, not you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It makes sense why God would have placed this as the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. It makes sense because this is the foundation of it all. Our hearts are built to worship, and we will worship. We'll find something, whether it's a leader, a system, an ideology, possessions, a person, or ourselves. We will love. We will show honor. There aren't too many occasions where Oswald Chambers can't fit, so I thought that I would share this one with you even though you've heard it before. This was his reflection based on Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And Chambers writes, Our soul's history is frequently the history of the passing of the hero. Over and over again, God has to remove our friends in order to bring himself into their place. And that is where we faint and fail and get discouraged. Take it personally. In the year that the one who stood, uh, that, who stood for me for all that God was died or left, I gave up everything, I became ill, I became disheartened, or I saw the Lord. It must be God first, God second, and God third, until the life is faced steadily with God and no one else is of any account, whatever. In all the world, there is none but thee, my God. There is none but thee. God removed the hero. God removed Moses, God removed you and me, so that God alone can be the hero. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two their feet, and with two they flew. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people, and I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
It is a wonder that God chooses any of us. Yes, he does. He chooses us for his purposes and accomplishes through us what we never could have imagined for his glory. For God alone is our creator, savior, and sustainer. And he is our hope. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Glory be to God in heaven and on earth. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, you are worthy. And we so often make you common. We so often think of you as a power to control or to use for our advantage. God, we confess that. And we stand before you recognizing that you are in control and that you provide in your own way. We pray that we would rightly get out of the way so that you may be glorified and that your purposes may be known. We pray that we would be obedient to your calling in our lives, that we may see the work of your spirit and respond. We pray that you would be glorified and that your love would be spread to our neighbors who desperately need you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.